Thanks be to God. Good evening. My name is Austin. I'm uh, one of the pastors here, and uh, really glad to get to preach to you tonight from Psalm 32. And uh, gosh, what a already splendid worship service to welcome all those new members. So really, really just thrilled by that, and still kind of taking it in. So uh, if you're here last week, you heard me talk about the fact that we're 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 discussing the Psalms in light of. The fact that the human spirit, the human experience, goes beyond the life of the mind. And I said last week that the Psalms are prayers of feeling, and that that's a space in Scripture that that intellectually inclined Protestants would do well to explore more frequently. The theologian N.T. Wright, he has a little book called The Case for the Psalms. And in it he pleads... Anyone at all whose heart is open to new dimensions of human experience, anyone who loves good writing, anyone who wants a window into the bright lights and dark corners of the human soul, anyone open to the beautiful expression of a larger vision of reality, should react to these poems like someone who hasn't had a good meal for a week or two. Presbyterians are kind of known for being intellectually inclined uh, Christians, and uh, we have a tendency to emphasize our head knowledge, which is good. Head knowledge is good. Uh, I wouldn't have spent five years in full-time graduate school if I thought that theological knowledge was fruitless. But in many ways, uh, knowledge of God is about understanding uh, what is outside of us, but also what is inside of us. You can be a brilliant thinker with a deeply disordered interior life. Does that make sense? You can have a you can have a, a great understanding of theology and be just a, a have a really disordered soul. Uh, Karl Barth, who was one of the most prolific theologians of the 20th century, had a live-in mistress who was also his graduate student, lived with him and his wife. John Howard Yoder, who was one of the most prominent advocates for Christian pacifism in the bloody 20th century, was a terrible womanizer who abused and harassed as many as 50 women. The first stated clerk of the PCA, Morton Smith, was a brilliant thinker as far as church polity, which is like how you organize church. And he was also just inexcusably racist. An orderly mind with a disordered heart is easy to come by in intellectual Protestantism, Protestantism and, and is far from the theology of the Psalms. We're made more whole in Christ when we take our theological knowledge and pair it with a robust experience of emotional and spiritual and poetic prayer. So last week... With that in mind, we looked at how the Psalms help us to not deny our anger when we looked at Psalm 12. We, we take our passions to God rather than allow them to fester into something like violence and deceit was the case I was making last week. Well, this week we're looking at Psalm 32, which is about confession and a grateful sense of relief that comes from confession. 
is not so much an example of confession. Psalm 32 isn't really an example of a confession so much as it's a poem celebrating the relief of confession. It highlights how painful it is to hide our sin. And then it characterizes the wisdom of confession. The psalmist starts off by celebrating the relief when they confess and then contrasts that with the aching burden they experienced before confessing. And then they finish with this this sort of rhapsody on confession. The psalmist starts by assuming that everyone, that everyone has both sin and transgression. And it seems to be making a distinction between those two things. So I think it'd be helpful to define what sin and transgression are. Well, transgression is a word for things that you do, that you commit, you, you transgress people. When you're impatient or you lie or you're spiteful or you gossip, these are transgression. And some Christians use that language for all of sin, as if to say that sin is only acute, isolated actions. But in my opinion, that is more narrow than Scripture is telling us. Sin, in my understanding of Scripture, is much more than that. It's not just our commission of moral failure. Sin includes transgression, but it's broader. It's a state of being that permeates individuals, but also wider society. Sin is transgression, like looking at pornography that objectifies another human and is adultery for married folks. But it's also the economic injustices that lead people to participating in the production of pornography. Sin is the transgression of overt racist acts. But it's also the collective stain of being part of a society who has winners and losers across generations because of racist systems. So we're all walking around, according to Psalm 32, with the heavy anchor that's composed of our own transgressions and the broader atmosphere of sin that we cannot escape and by which we cannot but be tarnished. Verse 3 describes this state of, of carrying around sins and transgressions. It says that carrying these is like groaning all day as your bones waste away to a brittle state. It's like a heavy, ethereal hand pressing down on you when you try to rise. It's like summer heat beating upon you with no shade, no water. And it cannot get better if you just quietly say to yourself, be better, be less thirsty, be stronger. As far as I can tell, in our community, we have two extremes that miss the relief offered in true confession. I want to call one privacy culture, and I'll call the other transparency culture. Okay, so privacy culture, transparency culture. And I think these are both prominent in our wider society, and I think they're both present in our church community. So privacy culture, as far as I can tell, is this peculiarly American thing. It's not the same as like an honor-shame culture where you're trying to hide something from shame. It, it, it's more about like image, 
Uh, it's this idea that people are entitled to privacy and not having to look foolish or imperfect, namely about things that are true. <laughs> of course, it's hurtful to spread speculative gossip, gossip about people, but this is something different. It's sort of like taking medical privacy and applying it to our social lives, to our economic lives, to our work lives. It's feeling entitled to not having our humanity exposed outside of our control. Does that make sense? It's, it's like not wanting people to know things that are true about you and your social life, your relational life, your economic life, uh, unless, unless you can control how they learn that information. It's a difficult thing to define, and I've been recently like kind of uh, meandering around with our staff about this, trying to articulate this this impression I have of of privacy culture. Um, it's It's sort of like the expectation of confidentiality within a Christian community that I think goes beyond uh, trying to avoid gossip and into fear of how others will see us. And it hinders the kind of sweet balm that Psalm 32 is offering. Not wanting others to know our struggles might be something that we feel entitled to as Americans, but that does not mean it is to our advantage. Not being able to admit that we bought too much house or that we got a pay cut or that we have credit card debt or that we're embarrassed by some personal attribute is a stifling weight and privacy culture is the entitlement to not have any light shown on our humanity in those things now transparency culture the other thing i'm naming is similar to that in that it desires to control the narrative but instead of keeping things private we share everything we overshare with the intent to shape the perception or or simple use of our community for our own reprieve. This is the willingness to share everything and anything, of course, with our spin on it, and not with actual vulnerability. A transparency culture is like taking off all your bandages, showing your wounds, but not letting anyone touch or examine them. A cultural example of this is a story I heard on a podcast recently called Apology Line. It tells the story of a conceptual art project by a guy named Alan Bridge in the 1980s. Bridge set up an answering machine on which people could leave anonymous confessions. And he attracted some very strange confessions. Where people really shared their darkest secrets. And I think some of the reason that people were willing to do that was because of the anonymity of this uh, of this uh, answering machine. Do you guys know what an answering machine is? Okay. It's, a, it's an old technology. It's like voicemail, but you can see it. So, he attracted some strange confessions, and I, and I think some of it was anonymity, but I also think that some people just get a rush from telling people everything. And I think he tapped into that by setting up this answering machine. And Christians can, in the name of confession, be really transparent about things, sharing all their secrets, but lacking curiosity. We can dominate a small group, uh, telling all of our feelings 
and actions and conflicts and disappointments. And for some of us, it's a rush to admit in front of a group that we're in a fight with our spouse or that we yelled at our boss. And there can be a a sensational thrill as we expose ourselves to a group of people. But what privacy culture and transparency culture lack is curiosity. Neither is vulnerable enough to allow someone else to be curious about what's really going on in our soul. Both of these lack true confession. Whether we're obsessing over being private, controlling the narratives others have of us, or by exposing everything, perhaps even with a self self-deprecating comment like, oh, I'm just the worst because blah, 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 blah. We're missing out on the true liberation that Psalm 32 is trying to laud for us. True vulnerable confession includes a willingness to be examined and corrected, embarrassed. But the reward is this, this real catharsis and true reconciliation with God. So having named these ways that I think we do sort of false confession, I just want to pause here and take a little theological detour, which is to ask the question, what does the word selah mean? Uh, In the NLT, it translates it interlude. uh, And the New International Version, the NIV, they actually don't include it in in their text. Um, No one knows for sure what the word selah is, but if you read the Psalms, you'll see it's just kind of in there in between some verses and we think that it's some sort of liturgical note it's used 70 71 times in the psalms uh it's in 39 different psalms and the hebrew root that's possibly connected to selah is the word for lifting the eyes or the voice and the aramaic root for that word we think might be something like to pray or to bow down So with context clues, we can guess that Selah is the psalmist calling us to lift our eyes, to bow down, and to pray. It's a physiological call in the midst of conversation with God. The psalmist is praying and then making this note to say, bow down, lift your eyes. In Psalm 32, the psalmist is saying, my strength is evaporated. Selah, pause, bow down, eyes up. You forgave me, my guilt is gone. Selah, pause, bow down, eyes up. You surround me with songs of victory. Pause, bow down, eyes up. Selah is this posture of open wonder and unafraid gratitude. Selah is a posture of exposure, not privacy. It's a posture of vulnerability, not mere transparency. Does it not sound refreshing to have disobedience forgiven? To watch our sins literally go out of our sight, as it says in Psalm 32? to be restored from our bones wasting away, to be surrounded with songs of victory and find shelter in God. Are you tired? Do you feel scorched and evaporated? Or 
Do you feel languishing? There was a recent New York Times op-ed by Adam Grant where he was talking about the word languishing is the word to describe this cultural moment. Consider for a moment if your confession is really just restrained privacy or is it unexamined transparency? And when you think about whether you're living in that privacy, <coughs> excuse me, or or mere transparency, consider this question from Dietrich Bonhoeffer's life together. How many of you thought a Bonhoeffer quote was coming in a sermon on confession? That means you've been around Salem Press. That's good. We must ask ourselves whether we often have not been deluding ourselves about our confession of sin to God, and whether we have not instead been confessing our sins to ourselves, and also forgiving ourselves. In Bonhoeffer's chapter on confession and life together, he's not condemning us for confessing to ourselves. Rather, he's inviting us to, re- to evaluate this and free ourselves from a delusion that leaves us tired and unfulfilled. Many old hymns try to conjure this out of us. They invite us into his rest to shed our deluded self-forgiveness, our self-interested privacy, our narcissistic oversharing. I'm going to read you some of them. Come ye souls by sin afflicted, bowed with fruitless sorrow down, by the broken law convicted, through the cross, behold the crown. That's from Come Ye Souls by Sin Afflicted. I hope that in some favored hour, at once he'd answer my request, and by his love's constraining power, subdue my sins and give me rest. That's from I Asked the Lord. Poor sinner, dejected with fear, unbosom thy mind to the Lamb. No wrath on his brow does he wear, nor will he poor mourners condemn. His arm of omnipotent grace is able and willing to save. A sweet and a permanent peace he'll freely and faithfully give. That's from poor sinner dejected with fear. Whether you're prone to controlling the narrative about your life, deluding yourself into confessing to yourself and forgiving yourself without conversation with the Lord through privacy or transparency, the common thread in these tendencies is thinking that we are the main actor in our story. In Romans 4, Paul is correcting that perception. And Paul, in Romans 4, which is a very famous chapter on that faith is a gift, he actually quotes Psalm 32. When he quotes Psalm 32 in Romans 4, which is all about our faith being a gift, Paul draws together the life of Abraham, the life of David, and Psalm 32 to reorder how we look at our place in the cosmos. And it's not meant to be shame from Paul. It's meant to be freeing. Paul's inviting us to see that whether it is the story of Abraham or the story of David, both of them were freed 
when they realized their flourishing was not dependent on their ability to perform. Instead, like Psalm 32 lauds, it was their willingness to allow God to be the main character in the story of their lives that led to freedom. And the same is on offer to you. To shed our tired attempts to control our narratives and to come open and unafraid before God, warts and all. And so that's why every week we end our service not with some sort of imperative to go out there and do better. Instead we say, all the fitness that is required for you to be a Christian, to come and eat this meal, all the fitness he requires is to feel your need for him. That's from another one of those hymns, Come Ye Sinners. And so on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he said to his friends, this is my body. It's broken for you. My body is broken for you so that your bones do not have to waste away languishing in your sin. And he took the cup and he said, this is my blood, the blood of the new covenant. And it is shed for you, for the forgiveness of your sins, that this new covenant would not be built on what you have to do, but what I will do for you to free you from the anchor of sin and transgression that you are carrying around. Let me pray. Oh Lord, thank you so much that us poor sinners who are dejected with fear, fear of what other people think of us, fear of ways that we don't measure up to our own standards for ourselves, that you do not tell us to do better, but instead you say, it is safe to take your bandage off. Let me examine it, the great physician. And let me heal you. Let me, let me heal you through my own sacrifice. And so I pray as people are in these communion lines, and I pray for myself as well, Father, that I would be able to open and unafraid in the words of David Taylor, be vulnerable before you and confess what burdens me, that I would not languish tomorrow, that I wouldn't waste away, that I wouldn't thirst, but instead I would feel wrapped in your songs of victory. We love you, Lord. Amen. All right, so we're going to now come to this table, and the way we'll do that is um, we'll have folks come up from these sides, and that's going to be grape juice on this side? Is that? No. Grape juice is near the street, and wine is near the church. Okay? And if you're thinking, I don't know whether I should come up here or not. I don't know if, I, uh, if I'm one of these people that eats this meal. Then I would say, uh, do you feel your need for him? Then the answer is yes. This is not a table for the perfect. This is not a table for those who don't have the anchor of sin and transgression weighing them down each and every hour of their life. Uh, it, it is a table for those folks. It is. Uh, it, the only reason you wouldn't come and eat this meal is if you just don't know if in your conscience in your story that you can say I do feel a need for Jesus that would be the only reason is if it went against your conscience but otherwise come come and eat with Jesus 
the one who has done it all, it is finished, that we no longer have to carry the weight of sin and transgression. Amen. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. Come and partake. And as you're lining up, I'll invite those who are going to be serving to uh, to come on up here. Oh, and also, Laura has our prayer request jar. That's where you can drop your prayer requests on your way up here.